From Vinebears New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vinebear Podcast. How was the weekend, guys? How are we doing? I mean, it's still kind of the weekend for us. We're recording, you know, before Monday, and it's MLK Day, so we're off. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but you know, what, what's going on? I have no sense of time anymore. No sense. Of, it's yeah. just all bleeding together. Yeah. Why? Um, I, well, I had my in-laws in town recently. <laughs> I had a baby shower recently. You had a baby shower? I had a baby shower recently because I'm, I'm pregnant. Congratulations, Joanna. Thank you very much. Joanna, waiting waiting until almost the last minute to drop the ball for the listeners. For those of you who've been listening for the past few months, Joanna didn't drink any of those cocktails she's been saying she's been drinking. (laughs) She's been smelling them and maybe tasting them a little bit. I have had sips. I have had sips. I can say. Thanks, Evan, for doing the work for for her (laughs) as part of the uh, podcast. My my darling husband (laughs) has been drinking a lot for me in my stead. Um, But yes, actually, related to that, we went to Manhattan when my in-laws were in town as you do and uh, I finally got to try the look to the cookie cocktail which is their I think it's aquavit based cocktail and it's meant to evoke like a black and white cookie and it has like black sesame on top and it's made with a whole egg really shouldn't have been trying this cocktail for so many different reasons so many reasons (laughs) you have to get emails (laughs) yes but I think a whole egg cocktail is not for me wasn't your thing huh it's got that scent yeah, yeah, the egg know. scent. <laughs> egg scent. Yeah. That was, I found a little off. It tastes delicious. Tastes like a milkshake kind of uh-huh. with the black sesame. Very, yeah, very nice. But um, I don't think I would ever have it again. Um, and then, but obviously always a lovely experience at Manhattan. The other thing that I, I um, had recently and I'm jumping on the, the hop water train um. <sighs> Because Josh says it's good, and I believe Josh. So I tried Hoplark. What'd you think? Very good. This one was made with um, Sabro hops, so it's like a tropical take on it. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I think they're going to be the next big thing. I mean, isn't it funny, though, that like I loved the meme that Dave Infante, one of our writers yeah. at <laughs> so good. created. It was like, <laughs> basically it was like two bros sitting around at a brewery being like, hey, man, I got a great idea. Let's just put hops in water and change this and charge the same price as, as craft beer. You're a genius, and that's basically what hot water is. That's exactly what it and is. And people love it. Yeah, it is good. I, it is good. It tastes good. It's water with hops. Mm-hmm. Who knew? Yeah, fizzy water with hops. Yeah, yeah. hops so, are like better than a lot of the non-alcoholic beers. Yes, yes, actually, like, I prefer it. Yeah, so does Josh. Mm-hmm. Josh like has one on like you know, when he gets lunch sometimes he like, grabs a hop water. I'm yeah. like, Josh, you're drinking a beer in the office? And he's like, <laughs> No, man, it's hop water. Also, <laughs> if there are any office that I think should not like look down upon someone having a beer with their lunch, it would be the Vine Pair office. Yeah. That's yeah, very but true. I mean I just need I need him on his toes and he's you know. <laughs> like, let's go, man. No. Hey, some of yeah. us might work better after one beer. Let's not let's mm. not assume anything. Yeah. What about you, yeah. Zach? What well, if, that, if that were true, it would say bad things about my work uh, of late because obviously not drinking in January. But yeah, did uh, did take the plunge on an interesting uh, non-alcoholic beverage uh, called the Pathfinder. I don't know if you guys have seen this. It's a uh, like a sort of I think they kind of call it essentially a, a non-alcoholic amaro. Okay, so it's fermented from hemp and then uh, distilled and then uh, has like a bunch of your sort of. Uh, various herbs, roots, other crap uh, infused in, like <laughs> Douglas fir tips and saffron and juniper, et cetera, et cetera. And it 
it was interesting. I, I got a bottle actually a couple months ago and figured, well, I'm going to save this for when I actually want to drink something that doesn't uh, just taste like fizzy water. I would say pretty good. Like viscosity wise, which is often one of my concerns about non-alc uh, spirits that they just are thin. It definitely yeah. has a good viscosity. Now it does have some, you know, it definitely has some sugar in it. So it's not like, you know, also like no cal or something like that, which is fine. I don't need it to be. Uh, but it had kind of the right viscosity for Amaro, similar aromas, you know, doesn't have the kind of quite the intensity of flavor because in the end, like alcohol is such a good solvent that like it does a really good job of picking up flavors in a way that nothing else I think that we can like safely consume does. Um, but it it is, it was pretty good. I had some just kind of uh, like I had a little bit neat. I tried a little bit with like an ice cube in it. And then I actually made uh, what was pretty tasty to me, which was uh, some of the Pathfinder and just some ginger beer which is kind of a nice, mm. like, you know, not a, I don't usually drink, uh, like the dark and stormy or whatever isn't like a go-to drink mm-hmm. for me, but it was like kind of a good, you know, it's also obviously not a, a rum, but it had sort of the sim- similar aroma and flavor and kind of vibe to a dark and stormy and which, you know, given that it's been kind of dark and stormy here in general, it was kind of a nice fit. So yeah, it was, it was tasty. You know, again, nothing quite fits the spot in my life that alcohol does. So, you know, I, I won't pretend that like these things are, uh, I don't notice the difference at all, but I do appreciate it when I have something and I'm like, eh, you know, if I'm not scrutinizing it too closely, it, it, it does the trick. So nice. I like the bottle. It looks like an old apothecary. Yeah, bottle. definitely. That's the vibe that they're going for. Um, mm-hmm. Don't know enough about who makes it to know it could very well be, you know, some uh, mega corporation that just uh, thought yeah. this was good branding, it, but the product was pretty good. So I was, I appreciated that. How about you, Adam? What have you been drinking? So, you know, I, I'm trying, I do like my version dry January, which is I try to only drink two days a week and only two to three drinks mm-hmm. in, in on any one day. Um, and also Naomi's pregnant. So I have, I really have fallen in love with, and I'm annoyed by the fact that there are not more half bottles of wine out there. Uh, I think it's like, like, why can't we have better quality half bottles of wine? So on Saturday night, um, I made like the Zahav hummus mm-hmm. and like a whole hummus bowl with grains and stuff and Yum. we're eating healthy. And then I had Vietti Barolo and this half bottle that I had and it was awesome. Like I had a little bit of it while I cooked, you know, then I had the rest of it while we ate dinner and like watched a movie. And it was just it's also like amazing for again, if we're talking about like Friday control it's like perfect for portion control like oh the half bottle's gone like there i go i'm done like i just i think it's so great and so it's so rare to find especially great for good wines yeah you know it's like why why is it only the cheap shit that's in the half bottles like i don't understand why is it like the stuff that's in the plastic half bottle on the plane like i just (laughs) i you know it would be so awesome to have better half bottles of wine and I want to buy a few more before Naomi's giving birth. So I have have three months to to explore a little more, Mm -hmm. but it was this just great experience. And I feel like it's also would be such a great way to get more people to drink wine more regularly because it feels like less of a commitment. Um, You again, finish the bottle. I, I feel like, it, for people who live in apartments, things like that, they're a lot easier to store. I know that, like, I was talking to actually um, the people at Delaterra Winery Direct, who are the people that import Vietti, and they were saying to me that, like, half bottles are much more expensive. Yeah, I was going to say. And they're more <clears throat> expensive to bottle in, and et cetera. But, like, I feel like there's got to be some way to figure this out where, you know, 
you see the demand is there and then sort of that expense is worth it. Because I would pay, I get what they're saying, like people only want to pay half price for the half bottle. I'd pay a little bit more than half price for the convenience. Obviously, I'm not going to pay. If the bottle's 60, I'm not going to pay 60 for the half or 50 for the half, Mm -hmm. but like 35, like that feels fair to me so that I have a great bottle of wine that, you know, I don't have to worry about wasting or if I don't have someone to share it with, it's just for me. I would be really into that. So let's make that happen in 2023. I feel like Aster has a lot. They do. Yeah. They do. Aster has probably the largest selection I've seen in New York. I have a funny story about half bottles, which is that when I we used to have them on the restaurant lists, and not infrequently I would bring out a half bottle that someone had ordered, and they would not believe me that it was a half bottle of wine because they look smaller, so small to people. Yeah, and I, you know, I'd be like one one table. I remember I was like, "Here is the label. It says it's three hundred and seventy five milliliters." If you don't believe me, like I'll get a. Uh, some sort of measuring cup and I will measure it for you. I don't think you want me to decant your wine that way, but I will do it if you want. But it's just like, it's amazing how those very uh, simple, but very powerful sort of snap judgments can really determine how people think about it. And yeah. some people look at it and they're just like, that doesn't look like enough wine. Even if it's a half of a bottle. Like enough wine. They're, yeah. they're just, they're, they, they, they take, they're like, why would I No, I it's like, they can't be enough. And of course it's like, you know, complicated by the fact that there are other small format bottles sometimes that are different amounts there are obviously like the 187 bottles the splits for like sparkling wine there are 500 milliliter bottles that float around there as well so like it is a little confusing if you don't look at them closely and or just work with them regularly but yeah it was always funny to me when people like refuse to accept that this you know it's like sometimes big things come in small packages y'all it's okay yeah totally <laughs> um so this week on the Vine Pair Podcast. We're discussing uh, fine dining with the peg towards Noma's closing, right? So obviously, if you've been paying attention to food and drink news of the last week, there's been lots of articles written on the fact that Noma is closing as it in its current state. Yes. Uh, for those unfamiliar with Noma, it's considered by many to be the best restaurant in the world. Um, and it is going to potentially reopen as something else like, you know, Whatever that means, Noma 3.0 is what what Renee Redzepi is calling it. But who knows what that is? If that's like microwavable meals, a la David Chang, right. I don't know. Like that's what that dude's doing. So I um, I don't know exactly what it will be. But the, but the thing that Noma is now that it it receives so many accolades for will be no more. Right. And this was kind of shocking to people. It feels like, but also not. It feels like there's a lot of fine dining that is reimagining itself, yeah. right? You have like 11 Madison Park becoming fully vegan. Uh, you have other fine dining that's closing. I, I saw a lot of hot takes. The, the, Land race, though. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and the issue here is also that it feels like at the same time that some of these places are closing, I personally feel, and I've talked to people in the industry, that there are a lot less Psalms on the floor. And I've always thought of Psalms as, as going hand in hand with fine dining. And so like the larger question here is like, are we just entering, like, are we potentially entering a post fine dining post Psalm world mm-hmm. where yes, there might be another, another era in the future where we go back to this, but are the, is the current era we're entering post fine dining and post Psalm. And before we have that conversation, I do want to say one thing, one thing to all the people who like to tweet, 
there was a lot of people too in Noma clothes that were like, I couldn't care less about Noma, but I don't care, you know, so I don't care that it's closing. Well, you obviously do care because you're tweeting about it. If you don't care about something, you don't have to have an opinion. You don't have to say anything because you don't care about it. It is like the most <laughs> annoying thing about a certain group of people who feel the need to like have an opinion that they don't that they don't care about having an opinion. <laughs> like just shut the fuck up. Anyways, what's for what's your criticizing Twitter users and I do not fall into this category. Do yeah. not tweet about uh, about Noma. I'm glad. Good for you. <laughs> but yeah, so are we entering this post-SOM, post-fine dining era? Well, I think it's really funny because I think we were sort of weirdly positioned for something different pre-COVID. And I think we had talked yeah. on the pod years ago before COVID hit about how it seemed like, well, maybe we're we're in this space where like wine sales are moving upward. There's this like whole burgeoning class of aspiring sommeliers and wine professionals who would like to fill these roles and maybe like more restaurants should have a sommelier or, or, or rough equivalent on the floor and combination of COVID and frankly, a lot of the scandals around the court of master sommeliers and just a lot of things have kind of conspired to both remove some of the kinds of establishments that would employ sommeliers or force them to reconsider their business model. And I think the sort of, uh, halo attached to the profession has uh, been tarnished pretty heavily. And I think we are really entering this this period where what a sommelier is is harder to justify for most restaurants, especially one who is purely a, a person on the floor selling wine. They're not a manager. They're not doing other things in the restaurant. And we are also seeing this sort of change in what fine dining looks like. And I think we'll talk more about that. But from a saw perspective in particular, I think we definitely – sort of passed through this inflection point and we are moving rapidly towards like fewer psalms, not more. Whereas three or four years ago, it looked like it could have been gone in either direction. Yeah. I think it's worth remembering like three or four years ago, right? We had places like, I can't remember the name of this restaurant, but it got so much buzz and I was just looking for it online. It's closed. But it was like one of these restaurants that was in Brooklyn that like basically the majority of the menu was Beaujolais mm -hmm. and they were all, and like they had two, certified songs on the floor and it was a place that like the vibe was like terry cloth napkins and like raw wood tables right it was like not a restaurant that you would expect to find psalms and that was kind of where we were going where ever as as access like you get a psalm and 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 that's what they were they were psalms they were not also servers managers etc they were psalms on the floor and yeah i think we're moving away from that i think also because like a lot of the restaurants now who've like clawed their way back from COVID if they survived are like, I can't afford a person who is devoted, whose sole job is devoted to continuing to grow an inventory that I may not be able to sell. And I don't want to be stuck with if this happens again. Right. Because right? we saw that too, right? Exactly. Everyone sold off their collections. Yeah. And there was a lot of people who had like these wine budgets because that was like how you showed off that you were worth coming to that was like it was you know it was this like measuring contest like what's your seller look like well no what's your seller look like and you needed a professional who who knew those wines and was able to like grab you the allocations and now i think there's less of a care of that it's like we want the wines that are good for us but like we don't need to be competitive and i i would be interested if you are a you know a rep now if you feel like there's actually and a lot of restaurants, more trust of the rep. 
Like you mm-hmm. tell us what, what is selling for other restaurants and like we'll listen to you and what you think is good because there's less of a knowledge base on the floor than there was prior. Um, but that definitely seems – COVID seems to have been that inflection point that really did change that a lot because a lot of times also like went open great wine shops and, yes. you know, other ventures across the country or like changed their profession entirely or became reps themselves. Yeah. There's a lot of former Psalms that are reps now, a lot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that is partly because fine dining is very much evolving and there's less of a desire amongst the consumer as well to speak to a Psalm on the floor. Yeah, I agree. I think I I agree with this idea that we're in a post fine dining and post Psalm world because I think for a lot of people it's still relevant and they care about it and they want to go to these restaurants maybe more for the restaurant part of it and less for the psalm part of it. But I think ahead of the bell curve, that's where we're kind of losing this trend. And I think it's happening for a number of different reasons, a few of which have already been mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think COVID was a huge part of this. I think at this point, this is a lot of money uh, for people to spend on meals and these experiences, that they perhaps just don't have at this point. I know we, we're more willing to spend on extravagances, but with what we're facing now, that just might not be, be the case. I think in both fine dining and in the psalm world, we've had a lot of like bad actors and these these types of characters who were previously um, worshipped have yeah. fallen from grace. And... In, in fine dining, that happened a little bit earlier, like in the early 2010s, 2013, 2015, you know, that's when Red Zeppi had his whole, whatever, his blog post or whatever about and, his bad behavior and, and his stuff. his anger issues His anger stuff. issues, right? Like now at this point, we make jokes of it. It's, it's parody of the kitchen behavior, right? Like with the bear and the menu. I haven't watched the menu, but great. I imagine that's part of it too, right? Um so I think there's some like people just not being willing to support what that means. Um, and then, yeah, same thing for Psalms, right? Like with the whole scandal in the court, I think fewer people know, like fewer just regular people know about that stuff. But I think from an industry and trade side, um, I think that's definitely impacted the number of people who even want to pursue that type of those credentials, right? And that education certification. Um, So I think for those reasons, these things are just generally less appealing from an industry and trade side of things or for people who are more tapped into fine dining and um, the wine world. I'm going to say it. I think we are entering the era of major food group. Like it is... It's not quite fine dining, It's not right? fine dining. It's clubby dining. Yeah. It's party dining. It's still expensive, mm-hmm. but there is something about fine dining, which is like white tablecloth, very quiet, very stuffy. The five, food is approachable. Five people right? around you, you know, making sure that like the, this perfectly played, tweezed plate is dropped on the white is is instead major food grab is spicy rigatoni motherfucker exactly but 45 dollars right that and like the, all of these places that have that have opened in new york too it's like all these all the places that are being lauded besides like the one restaurant you know that is the omakase for 600 plus dollars <sighs> yeah. right are all clubby 
Mm-hmm. They're like, they're loud, they're clubby, they're extravagant, they're expensive, but they're not fine dining. They're not tweezer food. They're not tweezer food. Mm-hmm. And like Noma can say all at once that it was like more approachable. It was very much tweezer food. It was a, it was a army of people producing these things. Plating lichen. Like, give me a break. Exactly. Yeah. And instead, like, I was just looking because I have to go to Miami next week, so y'all will get a report. Uh, but... <laughs> Oh, it's like major food group dominates Miami, but you have then the the restaurants that are going down besides major food group and opening in Miami are like pastis is opening down in Miami. You have blue ribbon sushi. You have like all these other big brands that are clubby mm-hmm. yeah. and that people want to see and be seen at that are very different. Like, cause I don't think it's that people are are saying we don't want to actually spend money out. It's that we want to spend money in a different way. We want to go and have a party and, Zach mentioned this, you know, episodes and episodes and episodes ago, but it was, remember Zach, when you're talking about like dining as entertainment. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is, it used to be, yes, the entertainment was just being able to like see the plate and take the picture and be the foodie. But now it's actually, I want a party yeah. as the entertainment. I want awesome cocktails. I want a banging soundtrack mm-hmm. and I want it to feel like I'm at a club and that's major food group. And they're doing that everywhere, and everyone's copying them. That's really They're the gods yeah. right now. They are. As mm-hmm. much as you can either like their food or not, they are the gods when it comes How to restaurants, restaurants right now. How many restaurants? 46? Yeah, and like the goal is like, what, it's like a hundred, if you read that profile of them that was in the Times recently, it's like they want to have like a few hundred soon. I mean, they're opening in Dubai and Paris, and like, this is them, and yeah. it's excess. Yeah, you're right. But I also think it's important here to note, and, and we kind of have been tiptoeing around this a little bit, but one of the other uh, reasons why this trend is definitely changing and, and taking hold is it's a fundamental function of the labor market. Like yeah. the, the Noma story is a lot of story about like suddenly yeah. it became not cool for them to have a bunch of unpaid interns. So they worked long hours for, you know, quote unquote experience. Making and a like, beetle. Yeah. yeah. And like, that's like roll a of, beetle. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. And like that, Obviously, Noma and the other restaurants in that stratosphere have always attracted a certain kind of aspirant who says, I'm going to kind of study at the feet of the master. And, um, you know, I remember watching, I don't know if either of you ever watched, there's that movie uh, that was made uh, about El Bulli, the famous like molecular gastronomy restaurant. Yeah, in I Spain, saw that one. I saw uh, that called, one. Yeah. Uh, I think called like Cooking in Motion or something like that. I can't even remember what it's called. Cooking in Progress. I'm sorry. And, you know, it's like striking even, it, it's not commented on because it's not really the point of the documentary, but like, one of, like some of the interns who have like you know made incredible sacrifices to be here their job is to fucking rake the rocks in front of the restaurant and it's like you watch that yeah, I and remember like, that when i watched when i watched it the first time you're like oh wow cool like yeah that's amazing attention to detail on the part of you know uh Farron adrian and stuff like but now you're just like man how much does it suck for these people who've traveled from around the world are not getting paid are in fact probably spending thousands of dollars of their own just to make this happen and they're not even getting to do anything in the fucking kitchen they're raking rocks and like okay sure they can put on their resume that they did a stage at el Bulli or whatever but like it, it, so yeah the point is at this upper stratosphere of like these incredible temples of fine dining as the broader societal sentiment turns against these unpaid internships. And that as people coming into the profession are less willing to just go do grunt work for no pay, it creates a problem where like the financial models under which those restaurants can succeed because they're so labor intensive just is not viable. I mean, 
they could dramatically yeah. raise prices. I also think it's true that a thing that is a little bit hit, talked about, but not directly in the Noma news is like, also like every restaurant, almost every restaurant has a lifespan. And like, the truth is, is that like, probably even like Red Zeppi was getting tired of the Noma shit, right? Like you do it long enough. Yeah. You're like, do I, I mean, again, this is in the documentary because it's about the very end of El Bulli. Like you could tell that Fernandez is like, a overwhelmed by the pressure of having to kind of like constantly be inventing new stuff. It's not enough to just make great food or make visually stunning food. It's like every year you have to have new tricks, new things that no one's ever seen before. And like, yeah, Noma didn't, wasn't molecular gastronomy. So it wasn't quite as gimmicky, but there was a lot of gimmickry and a lot of like, Oh, I have to find an ingredient that no one's ever used before. And I have to forage present it. For it. No one's forage like, for it. You have to forage for it. Popping yeah. up in not different, find it forage. So that was the whole thing. It was popping. Noma was popping up in different cities across the exactly. world anyway. Like that yeah. was his shtick too at the end. Well, cause that was the only way that he could forge for better shit. Right. Yeah. He <laughs> forage somewhere else. Yes, he had, he had forged Denmark clean of anything interesting or even edible. Uh, but the point Seriously. is, so, but the point is so like, okay, so you have this sort of element that's going on at the, you know, it's sort of in the fine dining and especially on the kitchen side, but, but on the wine side, on the Somme side, I think it, it's also a little bit of the same thing, which is like, you had, a, you've always had this tension of the floor positions like sommelier, which are maybe, Arguably more prestigious, but also less well-paid than waiting tables, generally. I mean, every restaurant has a different setup. Sometimes psalms make more money than servers, but often not. Um, certainly in most of the places I've worked, that hasn't been the case, or at least it's rarely the case. Some Maybe some nights, if you sell a lot of really high-end wine, you make more money than the servers, but, but oftentimes it's not the case. And, you know, as we've been discussing, as we've seen throughout society, like, we are in this very long, very painful process of reassessing labor and how things are paid for certainly in the restaurant industry, but also just societally at large. And the truth is, is that for a lot of people who might've been interested in being a sommelier, setting aside the scandals, setting aside the changes that COVID has wrought, a lot of them just look at the, have looked at the job. I know this because I'm one of them and, and other people I'm friends with and, and colleagues with look at it and they're just like, where am I going exactly? I mean, not only was yeah. the fragility of the industry put on display by COVID, but also just in general, the like, what exactly am I hoping to to achieve through this? And the work itself is can be fun, but it's not so incredibly rewarding, either financially or sort of experientially as to be worth doing just because you want to do it. And for a lot of people, I think being a Psalm, it was at one point, they saw it as some pathway to a career that was more fulfilling or, or more remunerative or both. And I think it's harder to make that argument, even if you do have the job, because in the end, you know, you're not going to set the world ablaze. You're not going to change minds. You're not going to be a revolutionary as a sommelier. You're going to be the person opening bottles of wine and the bottles of wine are probably going to be pretty similar from week to week and month to month and year to year. And like, at some point you go like, why do I want to do this? And at the same time, you have restaurants saying like, why do we want to pay someone to do this when we can have a different vibe that's less labor intensive, or at least is putting the labor into places that people are going to appreciate it more. And yeah, as you have pointed out with major food group and others, like we can actually still charge people a lot of money for a dining experience and it can be a fun experience that they're happy about. And it also doesn't require ungodly amounts of labor to see if, to see through. Yeah. We can have a group beverage director who builds the list at every restaurant and we basically just reorder all the stuff. Like, And I think that, you know, it also feels like to me there was like there was this point in time and I was talking about this again today with like a another industry with an industry veteran at lunch who was saying like there was a point in time in like the mid like the from like two thousand 
10 in New York. This is before my time of really paying attention. But then when I came to Vine Pair, I, when we started Vine Pair, it kind of felt like this was, it was coming to the end where like you might have gotten paid less, but there was like this cool kid cachet and club of being a psalm mm. and they all hung and everyone was hanging out together and there was like these ringleaders and there was the bro psalms and there was like the you know the the chill psalms and whatever but they all knew and they were influencing influencing each other and they were all working at these top restaurants and i think also there was this when you work at a top restaurant like that that is this classic fine dining there also is more of an opportunity right for the psalm to 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 build very personal relations relationships with certain regulars because it's a quiet service right it's much more it's it's much more hands on. There's real interaction, right? At major food group, it's a fucking party. So like you're going to the next table, and that person may not really want to have a conversation with you about the wine. They're there to have a really dope steak yep. and a bottle of Burgundy and ball out with their friends. They're not there to like geek out about wine with you. And so it, maybe there are some people there, but it's it's not the vibe. Mm-hmm. Whereas at Fine Dining, that is actually encouraged. Like the geeking out over the wine and the having the conversation, et cetera, yeah. with the psalm and talking about the courses and blah, 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 blah. And that is why I think a lot of other pe- people also went into the psalm profession because there was a lot of connections that could be made. They, those people then could become people that were benefactors to you and throughout your career to help you launch other ventures, whether those were wine shops or wine consulting or, you know, things like that in the business, or you could help those people build their seller collections, et cetera. All of that, you know, there also seems to be our generation less desire to build those seller collections. So we don't really care anymore. We just want to go out and drink dope wine right now or great cocktails, et cetera, and have a really good steak. And that I think is why all of that is going away and why then the people who still want to be in dining, because it is fun to be in dining, are like, why would I just not make more money? As Zach's saying, being the server that does it all and sells the wine anyways and make the bigger tips. Yeah. I mean, I, I think part of that is also, you know, the food at these places like the senior places. And I do have to say, Dave Chang is very smart in this because he has the whole range, right? He has Co, but then has Noodle Bar, which cleans up and attracts a different diner. And I think with places like Major Food Group or whatever, Carbone and stuff, like the food is more approachable. So it attracts a different type of diner. And it's younger people, perhaps who don't know or care as much about wine, who, like you said, don't necessarily need to talk to a psalm in the same way that maybe older diners don't want those more boisterous. <laughs> I'm thinking of like my parents, right? Yeah. Like would probably rather go to a fine dining restaurant than something like a major food group spot. You're never going to see wine pairings at major food group. Right. You know? they, and they don't need to. No. Yeah. So I think that's that's definitely something to factor into this as well as we see more and more of these types of restaurants. I mean, and I think if, if you look at like if you take one of the other greatest canary in the coal mines of Danny Meyer and you look at what he's opening... He's not opening any more fine dining like Gramercy Tavern and I guess the modern really are his two pinnacles of fine dining. Everything else he's opened in the last (laughs) is all fucking pasta party. Pasta pasta parties. (laughs) They're all pasta parties like they are like that's what he's opening because that's what people want. Like he's just he's that that's what he's doing and good for him. Yeah, well, people have realized that you can make a lot more money as a restaurateur selling 20 to 30 dollar plates of food that are simple to make and 
don't cost a lot in terms of raw ingredients yeah. than you can selling $70 plates or $200 dinners that are super labor and ingredient intensive. And I think it, it, one last piece on this I wanted to say, which I, I really didn't hadn't totally made the connection to until uh, what you were just saying, Joanna, which is like some of this also just reflects the shifting dynamics of what the people who have money to spend on food want to spend it on. And yep. There was a period of time when, you know, before any of us were alive, when the people who had a lot of money who wanted to spend it on food either wanted to spend it on fancy French food or they wanted to spend it on steak. And then there was a period of time where people wanted to spend it on ostentatious dining of a certain sort. And then there was the kind of people who wanted to spend it on tweezer food. And now maybe we're shifting into another paradigm where people want food party, right? Whether it's pasta yeah. or otherwise. Pasta. And restaurants need and industries need to be adaptable and evolve. And some of it is just recognizing that, like, the tweezer food moment might be gone, or at least in re, you know receding. It probably is not fully gone. There's always going to be some kind of audience for that. But you know, we at the same time, or or kind of contemporaneous to the like period when sommelier went from a word that no one knew to a word that everyone knows. We also had this, you know, the idea of this sort of foraged, rustic dining experience that somehow cost you seven hundred dollars a person became uh, not ubiquitous, obviously, but but restaurants that were in the style of Noma, inspired by Noma, you know, kind of obvious ripoffs of Noma, whatever you want to call them, opened around the world to say nothing of what Joanna was saying before, Noma's own ventures around the world. And, you know, like they've done the thing. That, that's great. But trends end. Um, they recede. They become uh, a thing that people come back to 15 or 20 years later and go, oh, yeah, remember when this was what everyone wanted to do? Or when, you know, eating lichen seemed like a good idea? Wow, wasn't that weird? <laughs> yeah. And I, I just think like, there's a lot of pouring out of you know, shedding of tears and rending of garments about what this news meant for fine dining. And like, you can fucking miss me with all that. Like restaurants close all the time. It happens. No, it was not closing for another year and a half. Like y'all can, can chill. And also they're <laughs> doing fine. And as, as I said, this stuff evolves naturally. Like the, the restaurant industry as a whole, whether it's uh, in a city, in a country or the world is, is at large has to be adaptive and evolve because what people want out of food will always be changing. And as new generations reach sort of peak purchasing power, they might want different things than previous generations or even just as life changes and people's needs change. And they've spent years not being out partying with their friends and they want to do it, whether they're 25 or 55. Like you just have to kind of not be too precious about any one style of dining or service. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Trends come and go. It is what it is. Uh, let us know if you care or don't care about the Noma closure. <laughs> Tweet about it, maybe. Podcast at VinePair.com. Really curious to uh, to chat more about this and where you see the trends going. Uh, you know, do you think that it is this major food group trend? Is it something else? Uh, let us know. Maybe it's just order at the counter and Taco Bell at home. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, and I will talk to both of you on Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach 
mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire VinePair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.